Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Two huge stories recently in the world of medical research. A team from Tel Aviv University created the first 3D-printed heart made from actual human tissue. And a team from Yale temporarily revived some functions in the brains of dead pigs just hours after they were killed. These experiments could mean big things for the future of medicine, but they also raise really serious questions about ethics. Maybe we are now able to do these things, but the question, I think, is should we? Should we just indulge the limits of science in terms of medical research? Should we lean in to the possibilities and not worry about the things that uh, that might implicate moral consequences for those kinds of things? That's what we want to talk about on this hour today. How far should we take medical research? And can we even stop progress even if we wanted to once it started? Will we soon have things like organs on demand? And Is this how the zombie apocalypse starts with the oinking dead, dead pigs coming back to life? That's where the conversation begins here on Detroit Today, and I've got two people here to help us flesh this out. Arthur Kaplan is a professor of bioethics and the founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at the NYU School of Medicine in New York. Arthur Kaplan, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Also with us is Pat Thayer. He is Chief BioInc Officer at CellLink, which is a company that designs and develops bioprinting technologies that enable researchers to 3D print organs and tissue. Pat Thayer, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you for having me today. So Pat, I'm going to start with you. Uh, Tell us how this works. How a 3D bioprinter works yes. in general? Mm-hmm. So um, a 3D bioprinter is essentially a modified version of a normal 3D printer. So basically the internal guts and how you program it is essentially the same. But instead of printing a thermoplastic, you essentially mix up cells with a material known as a bioink, and you can print out the living tissue. And and this uh, this idea that you could uh, print a, a heart from actual human tissue. Tell me how you came to to that conclusion and that that you that you could do it. And what was your reaction once it was done? Yeah, yeah. So that heart study was done by a group in Israel um, using a three D bioprinter system, and it's definitely something that we have seen coming for a while, just based on what. We've seen our users of the systems starting to do and play play around with. And so it's definitely not unexpected. I was a little surprised it happened so soon and with the intricacy of printing the blood vessels. Um, But it is kind of interesting because taking that heart, can you start to grow that heart and build a full-size heart tissue from that? Uh, So, Art Kaplan, tell me what your reaction was to this news. Is this something that we should be sort of nervous about? I don't think so. Not every technology should frighten us. Bioprinting, I think, is a great step forward. Remember, Steve, there's tens of thousands of people waiting right now for organ transplants. They need hearts, livers, kidneys, uh, pancreas. Some may need uh, a hand 
We've even seen uh, recently uh, transplants of the face. To be able to grow on demand an organ that perhaps uh, wouldn't take as much medicine to keep in the body, you know, if you transplant an organ from a dead person or sometimes from a living donor, you have to give a lot of immunosuppression, it's called, to tune down the body's defenses so the uh, organ sticks. If you could make a bioprintable organ from your own cells, or at least from cells that had been somehow neutralized so that they wouldn't trigger a reaction, overall, I think it's a good thing. We'd still have to fight a little bit about cost and access and how much it's going to be charged. But the ability to create a supply, yep, that's a positive. Hmm. So, so then the bigger question, the bigger picture question, I guess, is, is this a step along the path to really frightening and uh, morally questionable kinds of things? And, and is, it, is it that uh, maybe this is okay, but we should be concerned because the next iteration may invoke all kinds of questions that we're not quite ready for? Could be. Um, I think one question that sort of looms up is, so if you wanted to be very long-lived or uh, approaching immortality, could you replace all of the tissues in your body with either artificial organs or downloaded into a robot or bioengineered organs of this sort, you know, everything? It raises a fundamental question, how much of you can you replace without changing who you are? Right. And I think, you know, most of us assume that we're kind of the contents of our brain, right? It's sort of up in our head. But we're embodied people. We get impulses from our nervous system, feedback from our muscles, you know, kind of how we perceive the world comes through our eyes and sensory systems. And if those are altered, even if, you know, we're still living, I think there does come a point at which there's so much change that it isn't you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guests are Arthur Kaplan. He's a professor of bioethics and the founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics, ethics at the NYU School of Medicine in New York. Also with us is Pat Thayer. He's the chief bioink officer at CellLink, a company that designs and develops bioprinting technologies. Uh, we're talking about the news uh, in the recent days about really interesting advances in medical uh, technology that have allowed for 3D printing of uh, a human organ from human tissue, uh, the revival of brains in dead pigs. What do you make of the news that we're hearing? Uh, What do you think we should be thinking about these things? Do you welcome these kinds of advancements or do they give you pause or even scare you? Do you think medical research and advancement can go too far? And if so, do you believe we could or should stop the progress? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET uh, Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, we, we would especially love to hear from folks who have been the beneficiaries of advances in medical technologies, things that weren't possible maybe years or decades ago that saved your life or saved the life uh, of a loved one that you have. Uh, do you ever consider whether those technologies bump up against 
uh, our moral sensibilities, uh, whether we ought to be thinking about moral consequences when we uh, indulge these advances. Again, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. Pat Thayer, I want to get a sense of how your company approaches these kinds of ethical questions as they relate to the business that you're in, which is enabling 3D printing of organs. Is that a subject of discussion among folks uh, at your at your company? Um, yeah, basically there has been some discussion about that, um, mainly with kind of, you know, the intent and use of our bioprinter systems. And so with that end, when we talk to potential customers or users, um, which I'm sure are not selling to anyone that may be doing something that may be kind of blending the lines of the ethics Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we've been approached by like stem cell clinics and some stuff like that that we've kind of tried to avoid and try to really focus on providing systems to the researchers that are going to be developing these future therapies that are used, going to be used in the hospitals in the future. Mm. And so and so when you say that that you're trying to to sort of apply an ethical lens to the, the questions about who gets to use these things, what is it that guides those ethics? I mean, is is there is there some text? Is there some sensibility that you guys are are using as a reference as to what is acceptable or not, or or are you just sort of going as you go and and trying to determine on a case by case basis what makes sense? Um, that's a good question. I don't think we have a set guideline. Um, <clears throat> I would say it's a more of case by case basis. Um, just because we're kind of growing with the market. So we kind of hear new applications all the time. So sometimes when we hear something from someone and we're kind of like, oh, it's a little sketchy, we don't think you should do that type of thing um, versus, well, something that has come up was actually the use of human um, human ECMs and human proteins within the materials that we sell. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reflects on that Israeli research in which they isolated parts of the ink from basically, I think, the coding of the human heart. And then if, for example, that determines to be the best way to grow a tissue from other human tissues, where do you get that supply of tissues, right? And if we're willing to pay a lot for that, and what do you do in that situation? Hmm. Uh, Arthur, I mean, I think when I'm listening to Pat talk there, I think this, this gets to the newness, I guess, of, of this realm and the the sort of uh, infancy of our ideas about what limits might be. And, and you know, I mean, I think w- without being, you know, uh, accusatory in any way, I, I think you can say that in a way uh, what they're doing at companies like this is, is playing God in some ways and that there ought to be some real... Uh, restraints, I guess, uh, and some real references to, uh, the, to, 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 to go to, to to be able to say, okay, this is okay, but boy, we really ought not go to, to, to this extent. Well, I agree, and I think there do need to be some rules and standards. We have some, remember, in the whole field of human experimentation, 
We used to have a system where doctors could deceive people, lie to people, throw them into experiments uh, without their really awareness. We've set up a whole system now of informed consent and review by committees, which has cut back on horrors like the Tuskegee study and the Willowbrook study. Mm-hmm. We do have uh, regs in place about how to roll out a new drug or even a bioprinter device. You just can't uh, put it on the market. You need FDA clearance and approval. Now, the FDA isn't going to make moral judgments, but it is going to make safety judgments. It's interesting, Steve. One of the differences to think about is in the U.S., where we're so market-oriented, companies say it's direct-to-consumer genetic testing like 23andMe. So they start to make up the rules. We have them advertising on TV. You know, they run ads saying, find out if you should wear a beret or lederhosen or something. Are you really German or French and you didn't know it? In China, the government is driving uh, what's done with the technology of uh, genetic testing, and they're interested in finding minority populations, Uyghurs and Tibetans, that they think might be the cause of social unrest. So when we say setting limits, part of the issue becomes who? Companies? Uh, Do we want to have our government sort of saying this far and no further? Do we want to trust other governments to uh, set up the rules where they may have a different value system than we do? It's not an argument against having rules or limits, but we have to think, where are we most comfortable in terms of who sets them? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's start with Vernon in Auburn Hills. Vernon, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Interesting show. I can remember as a little kid when the Catholic Church wouldn't allow you to get a blood transfusion and you were unable to do a heart transplant in this country. It had to be done in South Africa Hmm. and how the paradigm of the moral compass has dramatically shifted and our thought process is shifting uh, as we speak. And now with with the 3D printing and... uh, the ability to decide, like, back then it was illegal to get an abortion. Now women go to abortion clinics. The minute they find out the kid doesn't have blue eyes or is a girl, they abort. And times are changing, and and I think the moral fabric has changed. So, so Vernon, I, I wonder what you make of all of those changes and whether you believe that there should be more pause, I guess, or more constraint on these advances uh, in a moral sense. Uh, should we should we be judging the ability to do these things according to the, the wisdom, I guess, uh, or the moral wisdom of doing those things? Are you comfortable with where we are, or do you think we need to pull it back? Uh, as far as the moral wisdom goes, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I I would uh, yield my benevolence to the Supreme Court and allow <laughs> they're a little more sophisticated and and um, you know I, I do have an opinion but I, I would prefer I would prefer people that, that are people that have been taught and trained in, in thinking that line you know as far as to, to get a religious point of view and also to get a medical point of view and a scientific point of view yeah. and, uh, and just weigh them all. I, I think just just jumping into one point of view, whether it's religious or scientific, I, I don't think that's the correct approach. Yeah. 
Vernon, I really appreciate the call uh, and and the comments. Uh, Art Kaplan, I wonder, I wonder um, uh, what you make of what Vernon is talking about there in terms of how our moral sensibilities have changed so far and whether that has an influence uh, over how we will view things now and in the future. Well, he made a number of interesting points. One thing to keep in mind is I think we actually have seen moral progress in some areas with regard to medicine, science, and technology. So back in the... uh, 19th century in the U.S., you might have used slaves mm-hmm. or orphans mm-hmm. or people institutionalized or demented elderly in experiments. We don't do that anymore. Uh, in fact, we're having our own little fight about what to do with the statues of people who did those things, much like the battles over Confederate generals and so on. But again, we've made some progress and said, look, you can't just exploit the vulnerable and the weak in the interests of advancing science or moving the ball forward relative to progress. And I think that's a good thing. We kind of forget it because it happens slowly, but it happens. Conversely, uh, Vernon also said, you know, uh, there are religious communities that set limits, and they do. Remember, when we talk about setting limits, it doesn't have to be everyone all the time. A Jehovah's Witness might still say, I don't want a blood transfusion. I've dealt with adults who uh, don't use that technology a few of whom have died because they didn't want to use it. But at the same time, we've set out rules that say, you know what, if it's a child and we get a court order, we can compel a blood transfusion. So communities can set standards. Governments can. Industry can set standards. Medical groups, scientific groups do too. There's a lot of ways in which we can shape the technology going forward. I'm not certain we're going to do everything we need to be doing, but we do have different levers to push. Hmm. Uh, Again, Vernon, great to hear from you and great question. Uh, Let's go to John in Southfield. John, what's on your mind? Oh, hey. uh, I just, uh, as a quick introduction, uh, my name is John Ponis. I'm a professor at Lawrence Technological University in Mm -hmm. Southfield. Mm -hmm. I actually know Patrick. Hi, Patrick. Um, uh, We have a little collaboration going with uh, Cell Inc., actually. Um, in my program, we're actually trying to get some more uh, bioprinters that we're trying to integrate into the biomedical engineering program. Huh. And we're actually trying to get students more familiar with this technology as it emerges, as it becomes a bigger and bigger part of uh, the field. So, so uh, yeah, go ahead. And I, and I, was re- I was just going to say that I, uh, I, w- I wanted to uh, come in and, and talk a little bit because um, I was interested in the discussion on the moral stances. Uh-huh. And I just wanted to quickly comment that um this isn't the moral questions that you're bringing up don't really conform to like some of the main issues that we've always had in healthcare the main issues that we've always had in healthcare you touched on it briefly but you didn't really focus on the access portion of it sure. in the sense that i know many biomedical engineers people who are working in this field who aren't so much worried about the long-term ethical um uh import of you know whether or not we're going to reach immortality or anything they're much more worried on the fact that they can make a technology that they know will work that they know will help people but they know that the people who need it are that not everyone will be able to get it right yeah that's uh, on the number one like immediate immediacy of Hmm. the technology that we're working with that's the one that haunts most actual researchers wow john i i really appreciate your calling and uh and and adding that dimension uh, to the conversation. Uh, Pat Thayer, I'll give you 
first crack at uh, responding to what John's talking about. Okay. <clears throat> about the cost of building these tissues, yeah, that's, that's definitely going to be an issue in the future. Um, even now, I would say just materials for research can be a little bit pricey. We're trying to bring those prices down. Mm-hmm. But, but, but when you think of what it takes to build like a kidney or a heart or a liver, you need trillions of cells where you're going to get those cells, the biomaterials to build that, um, and then the, the time to culture it. And even if you print something and something goes wrong, the lost time and kind of a high-pressure situation where someone needs a transplant. And so all that is going to be a major issue in the future, but I think where bioprinting can start making an immediate impact is on those simpler tissues. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, there's some groups that haven't, or they haven't printed human corneas, and those are relatively quick and separate to print relatively or even skin patches and kind of where, you know, bioprinting is some early wins that maybe 20 years down the road print full hearts, but can we start helping a lot of people by printing skin or wound dressing or corneas yeah. or maybe even cardiac patches to start patching up the heart or liver where, where like you don't need to get to the point of requiring a transplant, but it can have the same effect if you start to heal it ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, Pat Thayer, uh, thank you very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Um, uh, Art Kaplan, we're going to keep you for the next okay. segment. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation and focus on a new Yale experiment, which partially revived some functions in pig brains hours after they were dead. Is that maybe a step too far in the idea of medical research. Stay with us. Stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. And remember to come back Monday when we're going to talk about student loan forgiveness nationally and right here in Detroit. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. We're talking this hour about medical ethics and some of the headlines that we have seen about really interesting advances in medical ethics uh, and whether uh, advances in medical technology and whether they bump up against our senses of moral uh, consequence and medical ethics. Uh, We were talking earlier about the ability now to 3D print human organs from human tissue. But the other story that caught our eyes here at Detroit Today was this idea that researchers had been able to revive the brains of pigs who were dead for some time. Uh, We want to talk now a little more about that kind of medical advance. Uh, We still have Arthur Kaplan, who is a professor of bioethics and the founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine with us. And I want to welcome to the conversation Dr. Andrea Beckel-Michner. She is Brain Initiative Team Lead at the National Institute of Mental Health, which is part of NIH. Uh, And this is the branch that co-founded the Yale Research on Pig Brains. Dr. Beckel-Michener, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. It's sure. great to be here. So let's talk about this experiment. Uh, how big of a deal uh, was it that uh, that they were able to do this? Uh, and what was the thinking behind doing it? What is the, the application for what was done here uh, in the field of sort of medical advance? Yeah, this was a pretty big deal, actually. And as you mentioned, this was part of the BRAIN initiative, which BRAIN is actually an acronym for Brain Research Through Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies. That's what BRAIN stands for in this circumstance. Um, and this was an initiative that was actually announced in 2013 by President Obama. And his vision was to actually move brain research into the 21st century. Because even though we've had decades of researching the brain, we really didn't have an understanding. It's still quite a black box in terms of how the brain functions and how all of these complex processes and behaviors are generated through the brain. So this project that was uh, supported by NIH and all the money went to the team at Yale, Dr. Nenad Sestan and his team, was actually an effort to see if we could preserve function or at least uh, delay degradation of brain cells over a period of time from a post-mortem brain. So it's it's pretty much a breakthrough for brain research as we see it. It's a tool, it's basically a research tool that will bridge the gap between basic neuroscience and clinical research, advancing our understandings of how larger brains work. So I'll tell you why it's kind of a big deal. This has never been done before in a large, intact mammalian brain. We've had ways to look at isolated cells in culture or, excuse me, slices of tissue or things called organoids, but not the whole brain. And it was actually a surprising result. We did not know that brain cells were this this resilient and under the right conditions that they would be able to maintain some healthy functions hours after the loss of blood flow. Mm. So so the obvious, I think, question that jumps into the layperson's mind like me is, uh, how is this different from the, the kind of zombie apocalypse shows that I see on television yeah. or at the, at the movies? The idea of reviving a dead brain. Uh, draw some distinctions for us there. Yeah, so certainly. Um, we've all had those visions, I think. Um, this was really meant for studying cells in the brain. It's not really, there's no evidence of global activity, which is required for higher brain functions. And the researchers were really careful to uh, examine that throughout the experiment. So they were able to hook up cables to the brain and look for global activity, and there just was no evidence of that. But what they did find was that circulation was preserved with their special formulation and that cells were were pretty healthy. And the reason that's important is because we need to understand how cells work. They're the foundational pieces of the brain, and they form lots of intricate connections to each other, and we don't really understand what that map looks like inside the brain. So even though it's an intact brain, there's no evidence of the whole brain uh, coming back to life, as you suggest. Hmm. Okay, so Art Kaplan, I hear... 
what Dr. Beckel Michener is saying there, that this is about cells and not the whole brain. But uh, again, is this just a step along that way to the idea of reviving a brain? Should we be uh, pausing here and saying, wait a second, uh, is this where we really want to go? Well, you know, the experiment tapped into a kind of cultural trope. I mean, how many Hollywood movies have we all watched where, you know, there's a brain in a vat and it's, you know, (laughs) a person still existing or, in fact, the brain slithers out of the vat and somehow wanders around town murdering people. Hollywood loves uh, this idea of the uh, brain going on past uh, the demise of the body. And so it taps into that worry, fear, something, uh, adventure (laughs) that uh, (laughs) science fiction likes. But I think uh, if you look at the experiment closely, it's trying to understand things like, well, what would a stroke do if it damaged part of the brain? And maybe this system would help us understand that. I'm not worried that somehow we're going to have brains revivified from these experiments. When I was in college, I had a setup using a heart that came out of a very dead uh, frog. And under the right conditions, you could sort of string up the heart, put the right chemicals on it, and it would beat. It didn't make me worry then that we're going to wake up the dead because we could, you know, sort of get their hearts to beat with some chemical solutions way after the fact. And I'm not even sure that heart was functioning normally anyway. It was doing something, but whether it was doing what it was doing originally in some animal's body, I don't know. Hmm. So I guess what I'm saying is I thought a lot of the commentary that I saw on this brain experiment with the pigs was uh, over the top. People were saying, well, maybe we have to rethink brain death, the idea that when the brain stops functioning completely, totally, Mm -hmm. that somehow uh, that isn't a good measure of death. It's a very good measure of death. There's no doubt that the pigs from which this brain came are pretty dead. Um, Their head has been severed from their bodies, and you can manipulate it in a lab and put the right chemicals around it and see some cellular activity. That's remarkable, but it doesn't mean they weren't dead. Uh, And similarly, some people worried that, you know, we should start thinking about uh, reviving uh, total brains. We're so far away from being able to do that. I don't mind having a discussion about it. We could set up some (laughs) rules about it if we said we don't want people to ever really undertake that. But we're decades away from being able to do that sort of thing. Mm. So, yeah, it's a challenging experiment. It's really interesting that there's still some cellular activity that can be juiced up after the fact in an animal brain. What it means, how to interpret it, I would say still a little bit uh, uncertain. Uh, We're talking about medical advances and medical ethics, Uh, the tensions, whether they be real or imagined, between the things that we might be able to do to try to make quality of life better or even extend life uh, for human beings, but the the question about what we should do, how far should we go in uh, altering things or being able to manipulate uh, parts of uh, biological life in order to do those things. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Uh, what do you think about these medical advances? Uh, the idea that uh, researchers at Yale were able to revive some cells in the uh, brains of de- dead pigs. Uh, is that uh, a step along the way to the idea of some sort of zombie apocalypse where 
we revive brains separate from the beings that they were in? Uh, or is this just uh, a way of uh, getting to better quality of life, uh, understanding more about how brains work, understanding more about how cells work? Are you okay with all of those things? Uh, also, give us a call and tell us if you think we could ever stop these kinds of advances now that they're headed in the direction that they are. Is it possible to pull back once we know how to do something, even if we wonder whether we should? Uh, we would also uh, also love to hear from folks who are the beneficiaries of medical advances, people whose lives have been saved or extended uh, because of things that weren't possible years or decades ago. What do you think of the pace of medical advancement? What do you think of the things that saved your life or maybe the life of someone you love? Uh, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Karen in Macomb County. Karen, what's on your mind? Uh, hi. Um, boy, this is just beyond repugnant, okay? Animals are not widgets, and it's bad enough that, you know, they're being killed for food, for, you know, uh, clothing, accessories, but this shows absolutely no morals, no values, no ethics, no conscience, no soul, no compassion. The only difference I see between these doctors and scientists and serial killers who kill and mutilate animals is that the former has a college degree that they clearly do not deserve. This is so Karen so Karen your issue is is with the research itself not so much uh, the the outcomes of the research you're 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 fearful of the way that uh, that that science uses animals in in the research there is no excuse to be using these animals period not when this is 2019 in the way that science and technology has advanced we should not be using animals in exploiting them because that's exactly what this is hmm. you know your previous guest talked about how they exploited slaves long ago and how they're still trying to figure out how to deal with that well guess what you know we've moved from slaves to now we're exploiting animals hmm. and they are the most vulnerable in the entire population. Okay, Karen, Karen, I really appreciate the call and the, the thoughts there. Uh, Dr. Becca Michener, I'll, I'll start with you. Is this unethical because uh, you're, you're using animals? Well, first of all, I, I'd like to mention that the NIH has a lot of safeguards in place for um, animal welfare. The safety and uh, welfare of animals are primary whenever there is a research project that involves experimental animals. Um, and it, but in this case, these brains were actually discarded brains from a pork production, pork processing plant. So these brains, these pig brains, were going to be thrown away anyway, and they were donated for use in this experiment to the Yale researchers. But we are uh, 
always looking for uh, ways to minimize the use of experimental animals and, and come up with new ways to do experiments uh, using other methods, um, I think that's pretty high on any, everybody's radar as well. Hmm. Uh, Art Kaplan, the, the, the controversy over the idea of animal research uh, is not new. Uh, I, I was interested by Karen's comparison of that issue to previous issues, uh, the, you know, the use of human beings uh, against their will during slavery, uh, even after slavery. Uh, what, what do you make of that? Well, I wouldn't draw a moral equivalence between humans and animals completely. That is to say, <clears throat> what we did to slaves, what we did to uh, institutionalized children, what we've done to demented elderly, and the list can go on, of human beings who've been abused in the name of science and medicine and progress. I do think animals have moral standing, but I don't think they're persons. I don't think they're the equivalent of us. That said, we have been pushing hard to reduce the use of animals in living animals, in experiments. There's no doubt about that. We've taken out for example, you can't uh, enter a science fair. Uh, you used to be able to do that, doing something with a living animal, because we weren't sure that the uh, younger people knew how to treat the animals well and make sure they didn't suffer. So I'm not indifferent by any means. In fact, I'm one of the people who helped create some of the protections that are now in place for animal research. At the same time, if we have something like uh, the bodies of animals, because we're killing so many to eat them, I do think it's acceptable morally to use them in research. However, I'm not sure that it's acceptable to eat them. <laughs> that is to say, you know, the practices we have about meat and so on. Ironically, in a show where we're talking today about technology, many listeners will have heard of the Impossible Burger. You know that mm -hmm. one, Stephen? <laughs> so the technology is coming along where we probably aren't going to be killing animals to get meat or meat-like products in uh, you know, 20 years, we're going to grow them or make them out of plant-based materials and so on. I think that's a good thing. Hmm. So do we take advantage of tragedy to learn? Trust me, when someone gets an organ donated, it's often from a murder. It's often from child abuse. I deal every day with tragedy that generates the organs that we use to transplant. Sure. It doesn't make the tragedy any better. Uh, meat eating and the mass production of animals and animal farming that way, I think, is probably morally reprehensible. So I hope we move using our technology. That's a positive area where we could get away from that. Uh, uh, Dr. Beckel Michener, before uh, before we break, I, I, I want to have you address whether you worry that the research that uh, you guys are involved in could be used for things that aren't ethical. I mean, I, this is not so much about what you guys are doing, but whether you worry you're kicking open a door that somebody else who doesn't have the, the proper restraints or the proper moral sensibilities can use to do things that, uh, that none of us would find acceptable. Yeah, I think with every medical advance or new technology, there are always these questions that come up. Of what what are the uses of that advance? And certainly with this project, we had those considerations in mind. In fact, the NIH has taken a really proactive approach to uh, the in the Brain Initiative to some of the new technologies that are being invented in this program. And we have 
body of experts, we call them the Neuroethics Division, and they meet several times a year and they provide consultations on the projects that we're supporting. They've written guidance documents for scientists and they're accessible to the public as well because this is a really important conversation. And the medical advance is one thing, but we also need to engage both the scientists and medical doctors as well as uh, the society at large and citizens to really come up with the guidance and what those practices are, what what are the acceptable practices, and, and where do we want to be uh, in terms of the balance between the medical advance, the potential of that new technology to really help human beings, and what those uh, potential unethical uses might be. And, and I think a public conversation is an important part of that. So yes, it's something that we think about a lot and we have, we rely on our ethics experts uh, several times throughout the year and basically have them on speed dial if we need them, uh, which I think is really important. Okay, uh, Dr. Andrea Beckel-Michner, thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Uh, We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking about medical ethics with Arthur Kaplan of NYU's Medical School, and we'll continue to take your calls. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking this hour about medical advances and medical ethics, the sort of natural tension that comes up when we become able to do things in medicine, but then we have to kind of stop and pause and ask whether we should be doing those things. Two stories really caught our attention Recently here at Detroit Today, one about researchers who were able to revive some cells in the brains of dead pigs. The other, uh, a company that uh, has enabled uh, technology that makes it possible to 3D print human organs from human tissue. Are these the kind of things that you think are exciting about medical advances? Are they the kind of things that make us feel better about our prospects for quality of life and length of life? Or are these things that worry you or even scare you? The idea that uh, we can do things, but we maybe aren't uh, having the right conversation about whether we should do those things. We want to hear from you, of course, what you think about these advances and advances like them, what you think about the general conversation about medical ethics in light of medical advances. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, As always, uh, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, My guest all hour has been Arthur Kaplan. He's a professor of bioethics, the founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at the NYU School of Medicine in New York. Uh, Art, I want to start this segment talking about another major medical ethics story that's unfolding in the news. Uh, The Chinese scientist who has reportedly been experimenting with editing the genes 
of human embryos. Now, this seems to me to bring us even closer to that line between acceptable medical research and things that raise serious moral questions. Well, here, Stephen, I would agree. This was a professor who announced at a press conference last year in Hong Kong, uh, affiliated with a university in China, that he had taken human embryos from couples where the uh, father had HIV, and he had tried to change the genes by using a kind of genetic scissors. Some listeners will have heard of this. It's called CRISPR, to edit out uh, a gene that uh, was present in the uh, embryo and put in something that might give more resistance to the child to the getting HIV from the dad. So this kind of was a experiment to protect the embryos. However, we don't really understand this CRISPR technique well enough to be using it in this way. This guy had jumped the gun, I think, of safety, basic safety. Sometimes when you do this in animals, these gene scissors cut out things that we didn't realize they were going to touch, and you get spontaneous abortions or you get uh, birth defects. Remember Dolly the sheep, Stephen? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She was born with all manner of terrible health problems uh, because we didn't really understand at the time the cloning process. And uh, similarly, uh, here, I don't think we should be editing human embryos uh, at all uh, for this purpose. We might uh, also note that if there is HIV risk, we have a technique. It's called sperm washing that pretty much handles that. Hmm. So why you need to do this if there's something else that already works and we know it works and it's proven and established and it's what clinics would do if someone with HIV, a male, wanted to try and have a kid. Now, in the area, there aren't a lot of rules. And this is a place, you know, we've been talking about where should we set up rules, where should we have penalties. This absolutely is one of those areas. And, and I think here it's also an example of the way in which somebody who wants to do something that's unethical can stand on the shoulders of the research of other people who have been more careful and, you know, indulge whatever whimsy comes into their minds. And I think that is the dimension of this that may be the most disturbing. It's not the the conversation that we're having sort of in, in the conventional uh, spaces where this kind of thing takes place. It's the kind of piracy, I guess, that's that's possible by people who don't care about the rules at all. Yeah, and so people say, well, what are you going to do? I sometimes refer to this as renegades, right? Renegade scientists. How are you going to stop them? Well, you can stop them in a couple of ways, and I favor creating these rules. No more money. You lose your position. Anybody who does this doesn't get a press conference. Remember, there was a lot of media attention to this mm -hmm, guy. Mm -hmm. In fact, the media should say, this guy broke the rules. We're not you know, going to turn him into some kind of renegade hero. He did something unnecessary and dangerous. He may have harmed children. That's not the kind of thing I want to see big headlines about, you know, the wonders of genetic engineering of human embryos. We may get to a point someday where we engineer embryos and try to fix sickle cell or uh, cystic fibrosis or other genetic diseases. But we're not there yet, and we should be very tough on uh, people who do this. I think journals should not publish their papers, and mm -hmm. they should make it clear that they won't accept that. People may say, well, what's that all about? Look... 
If you're a scientist, you live and die by getting your stuff published. If you say it can't be published, if you didn't follow the rules, trust me, that's serious punishment for a scientist. Hmm. So, so how often do you suspect that we're going to be confronting these questions now? Uh, you know, technology is moving, I think, a little faster at this point in our history than it has in, in recent years and, and decades. Is this something that is going to challenge us more frequently? I think so. Remember, even old technologies challenge us. You know, we can come back someday and do another discussion of vaccines, right? Measles, Mm -hmm. vaccines. It's Mm -hmm. an old technology. It's been around forever, but it clearly is setting off all kinds of worries and fears and objections, along with uh, movements to mandate things or compel vaccination. So even an old established technology can still trigger plenty of concern and resistance on the part of many uh, citizens, many people in the public. But the pace has picked up. Remember, we did map the genome, meaning we understand our genes much better, both human and microbes and animals. That lets us start to try and engineer them and change them. That area alone is exploding. It's not just the sort of you know, recreational stuff we see on TV about know your ancestry. All over medicine, uh, people are coming up with new uh, cures, personalized medicine uh, uh, that's aiming at particular genetic mistakes. And uh, as that brain initiative we talked about earlier, we're starting to scan and image and understand a lot more about the brain. So I'm going to answer, yeah, I think we're going to be facing increasing ethical questions I'll add, I'm happy to do that. I like the progress, but it does bring the ethics along in its wake. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I also wonder whether you think it's possible to sort of stop progress, even if we wanted to. Is there a way to put brakes on these kind of things um, that, that we might be concerned about? You know, it's easier to delay them than to stop them flat out. But Listeners will remember we had a pretty heavy discussion in this country about the use of stem cells, little magical cells that can turn into many different things, derived from embryos. And moral objections, rightly or wrongly, led to defunding that. Mm -hmm. There is no government money in the U.S. going to embryonic stem cell research. Similarly, we've restricted putting genes from animals into human uh, embryos, uh, this kind of uh, hybrid thing. No money for that. So funding is, you know, the lifeblood of a lot of these things. If you cut it off or stop it or say uh, uh, you can't get federal funds to do it, it pretty much slows down the technology. Okay. Arthur Kaplan, professor of bioethics and founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU Medical School in New York. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. That's going to do it for me this week. I will be back on Monday when we're going to talk about student loan forgiveness nationally and right here in Detroit. Uh, you'll want to make sure that you come back Uh, for that conversation. Uh, This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.